0: There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder,
1: a brand new
2: podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences,
3: as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did?
4: The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided.
1: How did we get here? The modern
4: version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix
0: it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community...
3: Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Raphael Baer about future party leaders. Raphael will also be talking to Ian Steadman about climate change, because no one else will... And I talked to Laurie Penny about the Yarlswood Detention
3: Centre.
4: I'm joined by Raphael Baer, our political editor, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk about, what else? Labour. We're recording this uh, before the results have come in for the Withenshaw and Sale East by-election. But we're going to confidently predict, aren't we, Raph, as you did in your column? Yes, I
2: took a fantastic gamble for, for, for the first time. Uh, I wrote a column entirely presuming the outcome of an election that hadn't actually been held yet. But I did that because I'm so sure that Labour will have held Sale East and Withenshaw. And I say that um, for two reasons. One, I went there and I saw the campaign on the ground and it seemed... Entirely obvious that the Labour campaign was much better organised than the nearest rifle, which was the UKIP one, um, and also the the polling shows a, a massive Labour advantage. So, uh, yeah, I'm calling it Labour hold.
4: Right, as Nigel Farage is elected kind of dictator of all of, <laughs> after his massive by-election win, this will all look quite embarrassing. But this is a this is a point that you've come to before about the difference between the air war and the ground war, about the difference between the fact that the broadcasters you know, have to be objective, the papers are largely are right leaning, so Edmund and will never get as kind of much of a hearing in, in the media as you would expect. You know that that has a very bad representation of the strength of the Labour Party at doing that very boring, door-knocking, leafleting. Yeah, that's
2: exactly right. And this is sort of what I've written my column about this week, the sense that actually the Labour machine, what they call the GOTV, get out the vote is very strong it substantially accounted for why they weren't completely annihilated in 2010. I mean the the general story that's told of that election is David Cameron hadn't persuaded enough people that he'd changed and so the country didn't trust him with a majority which is true but it is also true that Labour capitalized on that by knowing where their voters lived going round to their houses and making bloody sure that they got to a polling booth on the day so that they held key marginal seats Uh, and when I went up to the by-election what you saw very clearly was that the Labour side was much, just simply much more organised and the nearest challenger, which is, was generally perceived to be UKIP, wasn't. I mean, they knew there was UKIP support out there. There, there was. And walking around, you found plenty of people who, who would say things, you say ukip type things about immigration in the European Union uh, and how they wanted to kick all the main parties. But what even, what privately even UKIP people are conceding is when they're fresh to the area and they're having to bust people in from, I mean, one of the UKIP activists I spoke to was from the Isle of Wight. You know, they... they they simply don't have the infrastructure on the ground, um, whereas by contrast, Labour, they have voter IDs. I mean, this is what they call GOTV, get out the vote. It's not very glamorous, but it's it's really effective at making sure you're on the day your people get out there and crucially, actually, making sure that they send their postal ballots before um, even so, you can actually pretty much sew up a contest like that before the, the polling day itself. I
4: understand Nigel Farage is very upset about the postal ballots. Yes, because precisely because many of them. Yes,
2: be, precisely because it, it, you know, the postal balloting is potentially an advantage to incumbents with lists in a certain area. And, and just the, the final point on this: what everyone has learned from the Eastleigh by-election last year, uh, which the Lib Dems held in in very difficult circumstances, was this point about postal voting. The Lib Dems. Only held that seat because they were so organised about getting their voters to send in their postal ballots. More UKIP people turned out on the day. If that had campaign had gone on for a week or two longer, that could have been UKIP's first MP. And, and that's something that every incumbent who faces a possible UKIP threat has looked at very closely. That's the playbook they're using
4: now. And George, that's quite interesting when we look at the Lib Dems because the polls are showing, I think it was now, a third of those Lib Dem vote, 2010 voters, have gone to Labour now. But they have got a great ground game as well. That's the lesson from Eastleigh. Where, where, what is it looking like demographically in terms of of where those Lib Dem voters are peeling? What issue? Why are they peeling away? And and where? And, and will it? How much difference will it make to the next election?
3: Well, the big shift came um, shortly after the formation of the coalition and uh, tuition fees, um, and then sort of around the omni shambles budget, and, and and when the coalition really became toxic for those people who really voted, voted Lib Dem because uh, they presented themselves as a left-wing alternative to Labour. And the the effect in the election is probably going to be most significant in, in Labour Tory seats, where the Lib Dems are in third place at the moment. And if you have a collapse in the Lib Dem vote there and most of them go to Labour, that allows Labour to, to win a lot of seats back from the Tories. And the potential for the Tories to make up for that by winning seats off the Lib Dems is quite limited, because as you say, the Lib Dems do have a good ground game in seats like Eastleigh, where they are already incumbents, and the Tories are in second place in most of those, mm. and so it's not going to be easy for them to win.
2: It's quite interesting, actually, on this point, that when you meet and when witness sort of Labour MPs, facing a challenge from the Tories or Labour prospective candidates who are trying to unseat a Tory get together, the first question they always ask each other is, how many Lib Dems have you got? I mean, it is. this says there is this pool of people who you just, you can almost bank are going to make it easier for you to win or swing it behind you. And, and that is you know, the, there's such a fundamental factor in deciding whether or not Labour are the biggest party or even have a majority in 2015.
4: Well, one thing that fascinates me is whether or not the coalition will hold all the way to the next election. Because I was talking to a a Tory MP this weekend who said, you know, we should we should get them out. You know, we should they should be gone, which is very odd because obviously the Tories didn't win a majority to govern on their own. Otherwise, they wouldn't need the Lib Dems at all. There's very little exciting legislation, it appears, coming up. Yeah,
2: they've essentially run out of things to do. um, And that is a bit embarrassing. Although they'll get through the budget uh, and then you've got the autumn statement. I mean, the the interesting thing about that, you do have a lot of Tories saying we need to just you know kick the, the Lib Dems out. Um, I sense some of that is one of those demands that you make that conservative MPs make knowing it can't happen just to sort of annoy the prime minister. It's one of these weirdly sort of self sabotaging anti Cameron things that Tory MPs talk about, because the reality is you have to show you have to demonstrate that it's an effective government um, right up until the end. And the Lib Dems certainly know that they they can't be seen to be flaking out at the 11th hour Uh, and. I think for most people, although from a from a sort of visceral, atavistic Tory point of view, you just hate the contaminants Lib Dem in your what you think of as your government. Um, the reality is, I think most people, if the whole thing fell apart in the last year, it would just look shambolic. And I think, who are these these clowns? Let's vote for someone else.
4: But it seems that almost every week we're getting a new kind of. They're calling it a kind of differentiation row that we're. I mean, you know, George. The I suppose the latest one has been. Well, education has been a, a long-running one. We know that the Lib Dems will block any further cuts to benefits. Uh, what? How are they going to live with each
3: other for another eighty months in this sort of joyless marriage? Well, it's a it's a balancing act for both sides, particularly for the Lib Dems, where they have to do enough to differentiate themselves from the Conservatives to try to win back all the all the voters they've lost to. To labor, while also remaining united enough to try and claim credit their share of uh, credit for the recovery, and for as they see it, the achievements they 've had in government on the people premium on uh, raising the income tax allowance to ten thousand um, pounds education certainly the reason they 're focusing so much on that is that their their private polling has consistently shown that uh, the coalition figure that their voters hate more than any other is michael gove and he's and... in the
4: magazine this week <laughs>
3: um talking of things that are in
4: the magazine this week you've interviewed um andy burnham who's the shadow health spokesman who was the health minister in the last government he quite unusually for him has come up very strongly against high-speed rail too yeah. it would go through his constituency he then almost within sort of seconds of your piece about this going online the communique came down from Ed Miliband's office that you know that this every, this was a collective responsibility Explain why you think he said that.
3: Well, the main reason is he is taking a lot of heat um, in his constituency over this. In fact, he was overheard leaving Westminster last night saying, um, I've got a sort of a lot of problems locally with this. Mm. Um, and so he explained all of that. They're building this massive depot on what's currently green space. If they want to do that, as he put it, they can give us a bloody rail station as well. Mm. And so after he'd explained all of this to me, I said to him, but if the government doesn't make the changes... What are you going to do? And I expected him to basically say, well, I will vote with my party because we're, you know, I'm on the front bench and it's collective responsibility. And I'll, I'll, I'll sort of bite my lip and walk through the lobby. Instead, he said, well, I'd have to talk to the Labour whips and say, look, we can't have a blanket position on this because it affects everybody's constituency differently. Um, so, so you have to allow people to vote whichever they, where they want. And do I think the Labour whips are going to to buy that argument? I don't think so.
4: And this sounds like the actions of a selfless constituency MP with only an eye on his his voters. Is it, or is there something else happening behind well, it? Well,
3: it is no secret that a lot of uh, people in Labour see Andy Burnham as a potential uh, future uh, leadership candidate. Again, of course, he he ran last time and. And came forth could could run again. He he's you know, he's not someone who um who is sort of sufficiently dated mm-hmm. uh, for that not to be a prospect. And it's you know it's no secret that he he does he he hasn't ruled that out and and has ambitions. So he has mm-hmm. got this ambitious um, plan on 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 social care and the NHS, which he has very much pushed against the scepticism of figures like um, like Ed Bulls. And now coming out against HS2, this is conscious differentiation and saying i am my own man with my own mm. ideas
2: certainly the the leader's office of of the view that burnham anti-burnham has been on maneuvers is at some level on is at some to some degree on low level maneuvers and that well obviously you know he would say he wants edmund Urban to become prime minister and wants labour to win no one can guarantee it. And in the event that it doesn't happen... Well, I think one called we, to serve. I think, one, I think we can safely presume he'd be a candidate,
4: yeah. But that's... I mean, it's really odd, isn't it? That we've had... We, we had a whole kind of se- season last year where, where Cameron looked like there was a lot of jockeying for position behind him. There's been less, I would say, in the last couple yeah, of months. Yeah, that's right. I, Theresa I'll, May has been lightly... Yeah, I think... For, but the the fact really is, busy.
2: the reality is, I think for most people in Westminster, the feeling now is it's all got... It's about 50-50, You know, I mean, you can argue it either way, but no one knows. It's very close. But those odds mean that in both parties, there's going to be a lot of people doing the calculation. Well, there's a 50-50 chance there's going to be a leadership election in my party uh, within 18 months or so. And the person who wins that election might then also have a not bad chance of becoming prime minister. And, you know, these are ambitious people. So in both parties, they might not say it in public, but you can be absolutely sure there's a lot of calculation going on among the, the people who think they might be able to shot Am I about to have my opportunity to start down the corridor that ends at the door of Number Ten?
4: And one final on kind of leadership ambitions: Um, Boris Johnson sort of faced down the RMT and the unions in London over the strike. Is uh, has his star begun to fade? Because he made by faced down.
2: You mean completely rolled over and capitulated?
4: Yeah, okay, but you know, what I mean. He he spent a lot of time chest beating, and yes. then the second strike came, got called off. But he had spoken in an FT interview and not that long ago about the idea that you had sort of seven years after which people were sort of slightly sick of you. Are people slightly sick of Boris Johnson? I think he's
3: probably. I think he probably peaked at the Olympics and has been, inevitably has been fading slightly ever since. And um, and I also think there is no great love for him among the conservative parliamentary party who are of course going to have a significant impact on any future leadership they election. get
4: to vote all the way through don't they and then the final two candidates are put out to the membership so they could you know yeah I'd,
3: I'd, I'd, I'd agree with Jordan. on that i
2: think that we, we might have had had pete boris and i think that the reality is you know they the conservatives say the conservatives lose you've got a contest there will be a younger generation saying can we really move on now but you know never write the guy off i mean he's obviously fantastically effective as an operator and also the appetite for someone who can win something i mean the guy's you know he's the most electorally successful conservative of his generation so that's got to count for something
4: and on that note uh, i will say thank you very much george and ralph
2: Uh, In a new segment for the podcast this week, uh, I, Raphael Baer, the political editor, uh, am on the other side of the table um, doing the interviewing and I'm speaking now to Ian Stedman, our science and tech writer, about climate change, because this is something we all want to talk about in the context of the recent flooding, or actually something that a lot of people don't want to talk about, but that's rather the point, isn't it, Ian? I mean, is Mm. this flooding climate change?
0: The best you can say is probably, uh, as with all these kind of of things. I mean, it is a localised weather incident in the range of kind of like an an international global phenomenon. But the Met Office has come out and said that, you know, all signs point towards this being as a result, these kind of events being more common as a result. By these kind of events,
2: do you mean, do we mean... Heavy rain? Do we mean flooding? We, is water levels rising? Can you just sort of drill into it a the, little bit? I what mean, is actually the rain, the rain
0: that's been experienced. Um, this is the, I believe, the fifth wettest January on record that we've just had and the third wettest December. But combined together, uh, the December-January period it is the wettest one of those on record. It's an extreme uh, sort of rain event we've had. I mean, the Thames Barrier has had to close something like 25 times in the last month alone. That's about 20% of the times it's been closed since the barrier was built uh, 30 years ago, um, it's our infrastructure is effectively increasingly coming under attack from events that engineers would have planned for being once in 100 years, and they're going to become once in a decade events. And, w- and what does this mean then in terms of... I mean-
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
2: We've had a lot of argument in Parliament and in politics and in, the, in- newspaper pages uh, about the, the sort of the immediate contingency whose responsibility it is to to protect us from this and how much it's all going to cost what's your sense of how much of a part climate change is playing in the politics of this now uh
0: not as much as it should be certainly under not the, not under this government um i mean you you see people like it own patterson who, not own patterson who was it who was saying that um or sunspots or something was like equally a contributing factor well that was this, yeah, uh, philip hammond, the philip hammond the that was Secretary
2: it yes made a um, uh, suggested that yeah among other factors that the yeah, climate change might be attributable to solar cycles which yeah. is yeah uh, as far as i'm aware you might correct me on this a relatively speaking a fringe interpretation of, uh, of it the does certainly science. have an
0: effect on the climate but i mean it's the, the problem here is that to deny that climate change is happening is to deny a basic Facts of physics, which we or chemistry, which we know, which is that sunlight gets trapped by carbon dioxide uh, as a gas. It, it lets some light go through and doesn't come out again. That's just scientific fact, and the consensus has been settled since really the late 80s and has become more refined since then. You know, it was clumsy back then, and it was understandable why some people might find it skeptical to say, "Oh, humans are changing the climate across the whole world." But we've had 30 years of scientists telling politicians that we need to start planning for this kind of thing so
2: do you have a do you then do you have an explanation as to why it is then that we're not the the discussion doesn't seem to be what do we do in the knowledge that the almost Mm. certain knowledge that climate change is happening but still some question about to what extent is it or isn't it responsible for this kind of i think
0: the problem is uh well my opinion has always been that The most effective solutions to climate change are not ones that individuals can take. They require state action. You need the kind of resources that states can muster. And if your ideology is small state conservative, um, or you believe that the state is better off not being vested this kind of thing, or you think that businesses shouldn't be imposed with regulations and things like that, Cl- accepting climate change implies a whole lot of other political consequences that you really don't want to have to accept.
2: I think it's interesting you say that. And I think there's I, I, there's also an element at, that because it's a global phenomenon that we're talking about, yeah. by extension, you also need international cooperation. And I think like, this is where hostility to mm. the idea that climate change needs a, a government reaction feeds into a Euroscepticism because obviously the European Union yeah. is one of the institutions that... that is engaged in this stuff. Yeah.
0: And it's, it's also interesting to see, uh, especially right-wing commentators who perhaps 20 years ago would have just denied human uh, influence, climate change altogether, have now sort of retreated back from that through, okay, it's happening, but we might not be involved and have now ri- arrived largely at, okay, it's happening and we're probably to, to, you know, responsible for it. But economists like Bjorn Lomberg and people like that who say that, well, what we shouldn't do is restrict our industry because a wealthier world will be better off at uh fighting the consequences of climate change so really we shouldn't be throttling industry by imposing carbon taxes because then all you're going to do is make us poorer presumably the counter argument to that is this is going to happen the growth
2: area is going to be dealing with it contingency Mm. or prevention and and you have this the the phenomenon that we talk about as green growth and green jobs but obviously there are people who protect you think that's all kind of hooey
0: yeah um i mean something that's quite instructive to look at here is that um we managed quite successfully internationally to solve the ozone layer problem i mean the ozone hole is still there but um it's not getting bigger and it's fixing itself because internationally in the 80s people came together and said okay we're going to have a system of ozone credits which is exactly the same kind of system that that has been suggested for carbon trading but um of course carbon trading is apparently going to be like some terrible economic disaster so we can't possibly think of doing it um yeah
2: but it's interesting so just just to to wrap up here you just help me out here because i accept the science i learned about the greenhouse gases i I agree with you entirely that this is happening that the the chemistry adds up that this is a man-made phenomenon and by all accounts all the sensible reasonable people are on the side of the debate that says crikey, this is serious. We 97, know, do something. Ninety seven percent
0: of scientific papers okay. in the last ten years have and all yet confirmed that. And the balance
2: yeah. of media would reporting would suggest it's more kind of two thirds a third, if that. Now just to be absolutely clear, what is the danger that there is going to come a moment when actually all those people, the deniers, the people who I think of as on the fringes, are going to have an opportunity to turn around and go, ha ha,
0: gotcha, we were right
2: all along. Don't you all look stupid, you green hippie yoket eating hippies. Is that actually... Is there the minutest danger that that's actually going to happen?
0: Uh, Probably not, because the group that is overwhelmingly... doesn't believe in it is old white men, and they're probably going to die off before the effects are really felt. So they have the least to lose from it all.
2: And also a rational choice to not do anything about exactly. it. Exactly. Because the lifestyle they've yep. got suits them just fine. Absolutely. It really explains quite a lot. Uh, Ian Sedman, thank you very much.
4: I'm joined by our contributing editor, Laurie Penny, to talk about her recent visit to Yarls Wood, which is a detention centre for 3,000 people in Bedfordshire. It houses people whose asylum claims are being reviewed or have been rejected. Um Lori, first of all, set the scene. What does this place look like from the outside? Because you see it in so many news reports, but I don't think most people have got a clue what it's like.
5: Well, it's very difficult to describe what it's like from inside because even when you go into the visitors' centre there are big walls up to stop you seeing in the wall that leads to the behind behind which is the actual prison. Well, we're not technically allowed to say it's a prison, but it really there is very little difference. Um, is Painted with this really weird farm mural with like all these creepy cartoon cows. So that's what's looking at you is when you when you're sitting in the visitor centre, which is just this um, small like a waiting area with some vending machines. Um, but to get to that, you have to go through you know about three or four rooms of security. You get patted down, searched, go through buzzers. Everything is taken off you. Uh, sometimes you're not even allowed to wear a pen and paper. And to have a pen and paper on you, you're given all your ID, the only thing you're allowed so to do. So no mobile with, phones, no, no... mobile phones, nothing, nothing, um, nothing at all. Um,
4: and the same presumably applies for the detainees, they're not allowed any absolutely, electronic they're not allowed equipment. Anything.
5: Although apparently they are given mobile phones by the staff, and so they're all given like a cheap issue mobile phone, which is obviously tracked, And um, but in a sort of ironic twist they're not allowed to use them because they don't have money on them and so they have to you know so if they don't arrive with money which many detainees don't they can't use the phones not even to call and say where they are so it's um as uh, the people i met were describing how it's a constant struggle to get money to keep the phones topped up they're actually allowed to do work inside yarl's wood for about 150 an hour they said what kind of work serving the dinners, doing cleaning, whereas well, actually asylum seekers aren't allowed to work on the outside, which is, of course, one of the main problems. It's a problem particularly now with uh, access to justice because the... Uh, the oh, So if you can't get legal aid, then you can't and pay you can't for work, representation. Yeah, um, yeah so uh, which is one of the reasons that cash-in-hand working is becoming more of a problem for uh, people who are seeking asylum because people have to find the money to pay these very, very high lawyers' fees because there's now no legal aid.
4: And you spoke to some of the detainees. Um, what kind of what, what were the countries they came from, or what their kind of stories? They came
5: from all kinds of stories, all kinds of countries. Um, uh, the people I talked to were from Zimbabwe, from Uganda. Um, I spoke to other people involved uh, with the charity um, which helped me get inside there, who were from Iraq, and um, really um, they came from all different places in the world. But the one, you, the story that was uh, that everybody told me was of arriving in the UK, arriving in England and suddenly not being believed, not being believed that they'd come from um, these uh, situations of extreme crisis that they were in danger and fear of their lives. It's, these were all women, Yarswood is women's prison right now and uh, these were people often who'd faced violent sexual abuse, who'd been beaten, raped and uh, they were telling some of these, whom write uh, lesbians who've been subjected yes, to corrective rape yes, in their home um, countries. Yeah, and I met um a uh, two uh, two lesbian people who had big who had been subjected to violent abuse and were in fear of their lives if they returned uh, to where they came from. So I'm trying to be a bit obviously, obviously I can't mention individual names. It's very important, but um yeah, the experience that people are having, which is um, sort of similar to what I've been reading in in and. Encountering in terms of people's lives outside the asylum system here is that you know you they you come to uh, to law enforcement to board, border agents um, giving with a story of sexual abuse or assault and instead you're told that oh no no you must be lying this is you know clearly people looking to catch you out and of course. People coming from these situations of violence from different cultures sometimes find it really, really hard to tell this story right off the bat to male guards. And um, a lot of these women aren't offered um, a female, uh, female interrogator to talk to. And, and I think probably the same
4: thing happens that happens, we know, with rape victims in mm-hmm. the judicial system generally, which is that your story slightly changes. Yeah. Because you're traumatic. You might remember more details one yeah, time, absolutely. another other details. And that's still there's that perception that if there if your story is not forensically
5: precise every single time you're making it up yeah, right absolutely and that's what um I talked to one woman who was just told that she was lying every time because she hadn't mentioned one detail um in her first interview and of course when people first arrive in this country often after a very very dangerous and difficult journey they're Terribly traumatised, they can't. They're not in a place where they can uh, necessarily give a forensic exact recounting of everything that's happened to them. Sometimes they don't even know how long they've been travelling. It's been a several-step journey. The rules are tightening up, and uh, UKBA are looking for any excuse to um, to reject claims there's a lot of pressure on to reject anybody's individual claim and um, it's meaning that people are caught in the sort of bureaucratic nightmare where they're just not treated like people
4: so even for those people who are listening who think you know we have got a lot mm-hmm. of migration in this country we have to obviously we will have to deal with some point of people who are mm-hmm. who failed asylum seekers is there even if you accept that a more humane way than a place that houses 3,000 people that's essentially a kind of big warehouse
5: well Absolutely. And, uh, one of the things that isn't being factored into the conversation is the cost. Um, the Yarlswood befrienders told me that the recent, the most up-to-date estimates they have are that it costs £100 per person per night. Uh, to so that's three hundred thousand pounds a night to which operate a pretty Yarsford, good hotel is, room in London. Yeah, exactly. Which is is huge, and it's it's much it's much more significant than, for example, the cost of benefits would be, or than the co- the uh, net positive to the economy, which uh, would happen if people were simply allowed to work. A lot of these people, and um, one of the women I spoke to t- told me that she wanted to become a midwife. Another person wanted to become a teacher. These are both things we have a serious shortage of in the UK right now. I mean, just last week, two thousand three hundred midwives. Uh, apparently the NHS is lacking. And yet they're keeping uh, at least one potential midwife locked up, a uh, cost of thousands and thousands of pounds a year. It just doesn't seem to make sense as a cost issue. What's the maximum amount of time that
4: people can spend in somewhere like that? Are there people who've been there for what There are people m- who've been months? there
5: months and months. I, I spoke to somebody who's been in there five months. But of course the, um, the really traumatic thing is not just how long people are staying, it's that people don't know when they're going to get out. And that's the big difference between, say, normal prison. And detainment in a place like yours—would well, you go in? You're not sure when you'll ever get out. You're not sure if you'll ever get out. I mean, I'm sure it can feel like that when you get inside. Nobody is told, and because uh, it's a private security company, Serco, which is running the prison, um, one of um, one of the things that that does is it creates an additional layer of bureaucracy. It means that all the staff can legitimately say, well, we don't know anything about your claim. We don't know anything about what's going to happen to you. We're just Circo. We're not UKBA. It's outsourcing that responsibility of taking care of people and looking after people. And it seems to me a really dehumanising way to treat people who have come to this country for safety. And there was a real disappointment that was universally expressed by people um, I spoke to.
4: And it works the other way around as well, isn't it? So Chris Grayling (laughs) is the relevant minister, but equally well that, you know, from FOI requests, for example, Mm -hmm. there's always gets into very, you know, difficult territory because you can't FOI private companies in the same way you could do a government department. Exactly. So that it, it works out quite nicely for both sides in that arrangement that there is some sharing of responsibility and they can shift stuff off onto the other. Absolutely.
5: The responsibility is outsourced um, in both cases. Um, what surprised you most? What w- weren't you expecting? I wasn't expecting the visitor centre to be so much like an airport myself. <laughs> and I wasn't expecting people to be so upbeat. Um, Are there many visitors? Ways I mean... Lots and lots of visitors. Yeah, Although you have to go through a big, um, like I say, a big, that quasi-frisking process. Uh, people are very, um, I think people get in to see their families and they just want to say, well no, it's alright, it's alright, and then after a while you talk to them and um, and they say, well no, actually, it's um, it's really, really bad in here, because I think people are very, um, people, people just don't know when they're going to get out, and it's uh, really, really upsetting.
4: Well, thank you very much for going for us and um, your column will be in the magazine this week so thank you Laurie Penny You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes Our theme music is Devil With The Devil by The Underscore Orchestra licensed under The Creative Commons